0: You can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The feed hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to The Sportsman's Nation brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is the fastest growing social media app For outdoor enthusiasts, if you love to hunt, if you love to fish, camp, hike, if it has to do with the outdoors, you're going to love Go Wild. Now, here's how you download it it's very simple. All you have to do is go to Google Play Store or wherever you download your apps, find it, search for Go Wild, download it, and instantly you will be part of the community. And what is this community all about? It is about the outdoors. You're going to love it. If you have more questions, check out the website, timetogowild.com, and uh, download the app. It's time to get wild.
1: Thanks for listening to another Land and Legacy podcast. It's the Habitat Heroes podcast. I'm your host, Matt Dye, and Adam Keith is not with us today. He is actually on the way to the hospital. Not for him, but for the baby that is basically going to be due any any moment now. So we were actually sitting down to record this podcast, and then it was like, okay, time to go to the hospital. So he had to leave kind of in a rush with his wife. So we wish them um, the best safe delivery and health of all of them because they're going to need it. So big things coming. Baseball have a whole nother Land and Legacy crew member um, here with us soon. So best wishes to them. So in the meantime, we've played um, basically who who can come on, (laughs) who can help me out today and talk about a really, really, I think eye-opening topic. And who else besides Chad Keith, Adam's brother. Chad, are you there?
2: Yes, I'm there. All you right. kind of made the uh, the old AT and T call to the bullpen today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> called me. That's We're like, it. hey, uh, can you can you be on the podcast?
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can, you, can you help me out? Hour long podcast of just me talking. Like I, I'll be straight up. You know that would be boring. People would check no. out like I don't I wouldn't even give myself five minutes in. You know.
2: No, you've got to have somebody to keep so, keep the conversation going. Well,
1: that's right, and and two. <laughs> It happens that you and I were talking about this topic just yesterday. Um, we were able to get out and hunt a little bit and check cameras and do this and that, kind of prepare for late season. And as we're walking around and driving around the farm and stuff like that, just had these kind of thoughts come to my head and then sharing with well, you. And we kind of had that. I just think what good what debate. got
2: us talking about it was looking at we were looking at the timber and needing to TSI. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, planning ahead, looking at the trees we needed to cut, looking what needed to save. I mean, we were following around behind the logger. Right. We had some cameras in that area and we're walking through what they'd cut and kind of planning ahead on what needed to be cut after after they've logged.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that I mean, as as we're seeing changes and stuff happen across, you know, the Prairie High property, you can't help but just, you know, have these these thoughts and perspectives and and things that change. Um you know, your mind on, on certain things. And that's again, where this kind of conversation stems from. But as we've talked, Chad, you know, this is, this is a conversation that, you know, up front, I think it needs to be disclosed that, you know, there's some heavy controversy, you know, around, I I don't know about controversy, but just very, hmm, stiff conversations happen about this topic.
2: You see it a lot right now on social media right the, right i mean as we've said almost the downfall of hunting social media or right and you see some just very heated arguments
1: no doubt no
2: i mean doubt. in the last 2 weeks i've seen a lot of very heated arguments between people that i mean they are very passionate about their their feelings towards the subject
1: sure sure and and you know that that's uh you know why it's important that i think we talk about it and make some very distinct um differentiations between whether it's just straight up vocabulary that people are using um, and then how that's going to affect, you know, a mindset and and ultimately a management decision that needs to be made on whether it is timber, whether it is uh, a buck, whether it is your whitetail herd.
2: Yeah. I I mean, a lot of times, a lot of times it's, it, it can be an opinion based on a couple small, um, observations to where they've made that opinion. And that's, that's a fact. And a lot of times people are closed minded to hearing other, other people's thoughts on, on, on this idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, that's part of why it's a tough, a tough subject sometimes is because a lot of people have made their, made their mind up before any other arguments.
1: Well, yeah, a, a lot of things, um, Based around this topic are observational or visual um, observations that that people are seeing, and and therefore um, I, I think the phrase, and we'll get into this more, but you know, seeing is believing. In this instance, in this topic, it's not always so, and and because of the you know a lot a lot of different variables, but. Um so that I think that's why you know those conversations you know, tend to get a little heated because it's like no I saw this I I observed this you can't yeah. tell me what I didn't see but without knowing the full all the factors and all the variables and really knowing the weight that they play into what you're actually seeing that's where you know that that heatedness comes from I think from conversations yeah, and,
2: and, you know sometimes it's also from on the deer side of it, it's from somebody that's had an experience with one deer mm-hmm. that didn't change much over its life, and from that one deer, they have based everything. that That's the truth. This mm-hmm. is the the no doubt truth because this one deer did this.
0: Yeah,
1: or, or expressed this, or it's like, well, this happens in my area; it's different in yours. Like that yeah. might be an excuse that, well, you know, when we're looking species to species, comparing apples to apples. You know, that species is the same. Um, yes, there's there's different regions that environmental factors influence different things. But before we give it all away and, and really get into it, um, a couple things. Sportsman's Nation, we're rocking and rolling. Um, so if you have not subscribed, subscribe to Sportsman's Nation, Land and Legacy podcast. Um, also, check us out on social media, Facebook, Instagram and to our website. Newer website, and we've got the Land and Legacy Apparel on the website. You can go to the, the tab and click store. It'll take you right to the store. Check out the conservation caps and the logo gear. We're going to have some more um, logo gear coming on there soon. Or you just go to www.landonlegacyapparel.com So A lot of cool things to check out there. Um, leave reviews. Subscribe. Tell us how we're doing. And I will say on the front end of this podcast, again, it's good. it's not our conversation won't be heated, but I think that there will be some uh, good thought-provoking comments and questions to come from this. So let us know um, what you think on it, what your opinion is, whether that be on social media, um, on the post when we make this, or contact us at info at landlegacy. We'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So before we get in there, we're going to take one quick break and get right back to it. The days of planting food plots, quality food plots for under $50, they're not gone. That's right. So many people in today's world think, ah, food plots are getting overpriced. People are paying more for the seed, uh, charging more for the seed. Well, with Stratton Seed Company's blends and Ford soybeans, you can now plant high-quality seed at an affordable cost. You know, that's super attractive um, to anybody who's looking to manage property on a budget. And you can still have, again, quality food plots without breaking the bank. And we've been planting Stratton seed for a while now and have had great success. Love the product. Love the price. You can't beat it. All the way from their wild game changer Ford soybeans that are glyphosate tolerant all the way down to the Heritage Blend or the Legacy Blend all the different clover blends, go ahead and check them out at gostratonseed.com. Okay, Chad, are you ready to dive into this thing? I guess so. Oh, here we go. Culling. That's such a wide term used for and applied to so many different things in life, in biology, um, used correctly and inappropriately, probably just as much on either side of that. So I think it's important as we start to talk about why as as land managers, as habitat managers, as wildlife managers, we need to understand what the term culling means and understand the terms and definitions and what would, if you will, affect whether we call or not cull certain whether species or certain um, specimens of a species. So right off the bat, to you, Chad, what does the term cull mean to you?
2: I mean just I guess my layman's definition, if if you're thinking of culling, it's it's something that is not desired. Right. I but, mean
1: Old Webster uh, tells obviously us Obviously you
2: think of it in, in fishing and everything else, it's it's getting rid of something that is not wanted.
1: Right. Oh, Webster tells us something picked out, put aside as inferior. So something has a characteristic that is viewed as inferior, and therefore it is set aside, put out, um, removed from, if you will, I guess, a population or a sample because of its characteristics that are viewed as inferior. So, in in understanding that, <clears throat> how many times have we heard the phrase Oh that's a coal buck? Uh, I I can't even
2: count on both hands and feet the number of times I think I've seen it on social media in the last two weeks. Maybe it, I mean maybe three weeks. I mean it's been nonstop.
1: Right, right. And I think as I, I think it's commonly used and I want you to share your opinion on this as well. But I think it's commonly used that the term "cull" is because I think it's almost like human nature to have an or want desire have an influence on something. And when we, you know, harvest an animal, certainly we have an influence on that herd. But the scale of which we do. I don't think is quite understood. And, and the fact of like, okay, I'm culling that. Yes, you've set it aside, if you will, because you believe that it's inferior. But ultimately, what is the impact? And I feel like that's that's where the term culling, we want to have an impact. But in reality, is, if you will, are culling efforts truly changing things? And, and that's where I think there's a lot of differences and and ultimately why that term is used and thrown around so much.
2: Well, and I, I think it's, I think it's made a, I guess it's it's made a charge in in like low fence hunting, just purely based off of high fence places where they can actually influence the right. deer that they have, and people have seen that in the high fence situations and think that it transfers over to your free range deer,
1: right? Closed ecosystems and open ecosystems. Uh, or basically high-fenced or low-fenced operations, completely different. Um, and then we've also talked and brought on guests on this podcast about, you know, the efficiency, if you will, of, or excuse me, <laughs> lack of efficiency, um, of the ability to control antler sizes based on culling deer. Just at the last national convention at QDMA there, they had a, a gentleman's talk specifically of this very intensive study that they did in in texas and over years and years and like harvesting hundreds of animals in specific units they did not see any changes in antler sizes and they were selectively culling deer based on if you will inferior antlers what they saw it had no effect it didn't change well, um, the result of that system. A lot of times it seems like the
2: problem to me is there's so many factors weighing into that that sometimes somebody thinks that their culling is working, when in reality it's other factors that are, that are determining an increase in their, say, buck antler size. Sure. I mean, yes. I, I saw a guy comment on this not long ago that was like, well— I manage this farm and we're seeing results and doing this and it's like but he's in Illinois and he's letting deer get to an older age. Mm-hmm. It's like you there are other factors that determine that and you're you're placing your benefits on culling.
1: Right. Right. And <clears throat> the the base the other two definitions that that to fully understand and grasp basically effectiveness or, or whether you should be culling or not or or should be using that term or not. Um, and they're they're bigger, if you will, scientific words that I, I don't want to, you know, as we're talking, I don't want to bore people with genetic terms or anything like that. However, they're extremely important to understand what they mean in the form of whether we should call or terminate a species or a specimen or not. And What it breaks down to is the terms genotype and phenotype. And again, this is not – you guys know this this is not like this big scientific podcast, and I'm not a geneticist. And actually, it's funny that we're talking about phenotype and genotype on a podcast because in college – I don't know about you, Chad. I knew knew you had probably a genetics (laughs) class. I was bad at it. Like That was the worst grade I got in college. And Uh, I remember that to this day like – I feel like I understand, like I grasp it. But g- genetics, if if there's an exception to anything, biologically speaking, you could find it in genetics. Like you, there would be a rule and then there'd be eight exceptions and I could never get it. Like I was just like, I'm horrible at this. Nah, and it's funny that I find myself I, talking about it now.
2: <laughs> same way in college. Had a concept of it, but yeah, that was not an interest of mine.
1: Yeah. Yeah, at all. I mean, and it's funny how like life circles you back to these things. So, so I guess not presenting this as a hey, I totally understand genetics to its fullest potential because I think as a uh, gosh, as a whole human race, we still don't quite understand it all. But we're not going into this genetic talk deep at all. But we need to address these terms though and understand them, and they're very basic terms. And they will provide us basically with a foundation of basis to make these decisions whether basically to cull or not to cull. And, and we're not talking too about culling, you know, just as if you will, deer. We're talking about, and Chad, you'll be able to comment on this um, in greater detail, but we're talking about trees as well. TSI is a form of culling, it's just a different specimen that is being culled but you're still making a decision of inferior or not ultimately so this this conversation in general is going to be very applicable to anybody out there who cares about wildlife management habitat management land management all of it it's big and comes from. this is this is a perspective basically conversation um and hopefully again it's going to open up those eyes and more additional conversation for us all to have so, initially, genotype is strictly defined as complete, heritable, genetic identity. So, what you, everything completely, what you're inheriting is your genetic identity. So, this is DNA. What you're getting from your parents as offspring, it is directly heritable, these genetic or this, a genetic identity. Whereas, we,
2: go ahead. We hear it thrown thrown about nonstop in the whitetail world. I mean, you hear it in everything. I We've heard it, I've heard it my whole life in Southern Missouri. Well, we just don't have the genetics. We yeah, just don't yeah. have the genetics everyone else does. And it it really cracks me up when you hear the people in like Southern Missouri, well, Northern Missouri, they've just got better genetics than we've got down here. We we just don't have as big a deer because they've got better genetics, and you it it always blows their minds. when you're like, um,
1: the this deer research. were
2: reintroduced, white whitetail deer were reintroduced in Northern Missouri from Southern Missouri.
1: They, Those they deer pulled came them out of down here specifically, like the Mark Twain National Forest around Cassville area, I believe. And yeah, I think
2: there were multiple locations.
1: Yeah, yes, uh, but I mean, like in areas that. You're not typically thinking of, hey, this is a great, if you will, for the lack of a better term, uh, genetic area. Like these deer aren't what you would you would suspect or someone would say, don't have the genetic quality as a northern Missouri deer. However, yeah. it's the same deer. It's the same genetic, heritable, identity. The deer in southern Missouri are the same. In their traits, in their DNA, in their genetics, as northern Missouri. But here's the other definition and that's phenotype. And phenotype is the set of observable characteristics of an individual resulting from interaction of its genotype and its environment. So, observable characteristics for like a deer, especially a male deer, is its antlers. But it's saying, it is an interaction between its genes and its environment. So there's multiple factors that are going to weigh into what you are seeing. And, and so, I, okay, we got the definitions, genotype and phenotype. We know what they are. One is a set of heritable genetic characteristics. You're, you have your genes. You're passed down. You can't change them. They are what they are. And you have those things, you have those genes, the same genes for your whole life. So let's take a buck, for example. A year and a half old buck has the same genes as he does when he's four and a half. They don't change. They're not changing in his life as he's getting older. His genes don't change. His phenotype will change, though. His visual characteristics of those genes interacting with environmental factors change, but his genes don't change. So basically, if a spike buck, Chad, breeds with a doe, he passed on his genetic identity to that offspring.
2: That that means that will be a a spike, won't it? A spike's always a spike.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I've read. That's how it works, isn't it? So I've read. But that's the thing. You know, if that deer, that spike buck, was then to get to four and a half, he's still passing on. Let's say he's four and a half. He's a great 155-inch deer, a fantastic representation of a mature whitetail that, most likely anybody would be very satisfied to put their tag on. And then he breeds another doe at four and a half. He's still passing on that same exact genetic identity to the offspring. It doesn't change, even though his phenotype changes. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think think that... When we're looking at culling deer specifically, we get the two confused. As a as a general public, hunters in general, don't understand the difference between phenotype and genotype. So then if, if an inferior deer, let's just say a, a younger two-and-a-half-year-old who may not look as good as other two-and-a-half-year-olds were to um, breed with a doe... His phenotype does not always is not always a direct representation of his genotype. So basically, what he's displaying on his head is not always what he's passing on in in the traits or the identity to the offspring. So, well, and you see, you see it especially in like
2: especially those younger deer with their first set of antlers. Right. You see you hear that a lot of well this uh, I w- I want my deer coming out their first their first of the antlers to have multiple points.
1: It's like like better.
2: Just, just because just uh, because a lot of times and you've seen I've seen some studies on that where they're showing I mean all it is is according to when that doe was bred. Correct. So that that fawn was birthed just a little earlier than this other one and that's it had a better set of antlers is the first year. But. It, had,
1: it had more time to um, basically grow, get bigger, have a better, if you will, diet, better nutrition. And it's just been here longer on the earth. So as a year and a half, that's its representation of, if you will, the time it's spent here since it's been born. So if you have an early birth of, of a year and a half old buck, he spent more time consuming, hopefully high quality, uh, forage that he can produce bigger and better antlers it's a timing thing but there is a if you uh, if you will a catch-up period in in a two and a half year old then they all bounce back out you know what i mean yep so that's
2: it's uh it's yet again another one of those where we form our opinions without a lot of information
1: yeah and and it's very easy to do um because again that goes back to the phrase we we talked about the very beginning is seeing is believing and and you want to apply that to everything that you see however we often discount the one of the most important things is the environmental factors that influence again what we see that goes back to the term phenotype it's the environmental factors that in, in interaction with the genotype it's genes that give you observable characteristics in something, uh, so we it, in this in this um, field seen as not always believing. It's you're not always getting an exact, accurate representation. So that then correlates to, okay, if that's not the case, then how do I how do I then make a management decision on whether it's to call or to pass and move on. And I think that that right there is kind of the the base of the argument is if it if I can't see everything, then how do I how do I know what to do? How do I know what to move forward with? So, um,
2: and honestly, it just comes down to if if you're managing for say larger whitetails, it comes down to you manage for age. You can't you just you can't base it off of any. Appearance, except for age,
1: correct, correct, and and here's <clears throat> here's another important factor when we talk about age and genotype and phenotype, especially with white tails. And we're going to get into the forestry side of things here in in, in a little bit because again we're, we can make these same um, or similar decision or observations when it comes to managing habitat. But right now we're focusing on, on Let's say the whitetail herd. Since there is the the phenotype, the expression of the antlers, is characterized or or there's impacted by the environment. Chad, when we see of uh an area, let's just say Douglas County, Missouri, which is southwestern Missouri, and we were to say, okay, when when a a deer, a buck in southwest Missouri gets to the age of four and a half, that average representation of his antlers would score out to be, what do you say, 135 inches? Yeah, I would say probably. I would say on average. average. I mean, you have, and
2: I think a lot of it comes down to some places with a little better habitat. But, sure. I mean, on average, it's probably 135s, 130s, 140s, maybe.
1: But you brought up a really important factor in that. Is that, okay, habitat. Habitat influences that. So is the average of the adult mature deer, 135 inches, is that a result of, basically, is that their peak? Is that the best that they can do? Or is the environment, is the habitat limiting what they can express. It's limiting the potential for that animal to express its full genes, its full traits, its full heritable traits that it got from its its parents. So, it, in that it goes back to basically what you said about the kind of restocking efforts of the deer from southwest Missouri to northern Missouri is okay, if we've got the same genes there, we've got different environments, we've got different habitat. Um, in those two places, but the same genes, that tells me and anyone else, if they if they critically think about it, that if the habitat was different or more similar in southwest Missouri as it is to northern Missouri, wouldn't we have a different average of mature deer score-wise or, or a different phenotype in southwest Missouri if the habitat was more closely or resembled northern missouri we could take maybe that 135 average inch average and bump it up to like 155 and you
2: know it's <clears throat> i guess where where we have trouble with that is a lot of times just in human nature we want we want that change to be overnight uh, yes and yes. and that that is just not possible it's one of those that sometimes you know, I've seen some of the the past research in in nutrition and and as according to like soil soil health and and mm-hmm. soil uh, rankings, you see that we're feeding deer and getting them where it takes a couple generations yes. to see the change start to take effect. Mm-hmm. And it's I mean, I, for people that aren't familiar with you, you mentioned Douglas County, and you guys have mentioned it before, but Predominantly, that area is a lot of fescue pasture that's generally close to, we call it lip high, but grazed down <laughs> yeah. pretty short. Right. And closed canopy timber. That's a yeah. large majority of that area is that. So there's very, very little to offer a whitetail.
1: It's it's poor habitat. Overall condition-wise, this part of the country, its land use is poor habitat for a whitetail.
2: Yes, and that's—I mean—a lot of that is based, and I've heard it my whole life. Oh, we just don't have very big deer around here. We just don't have very big deer around here, and that's why. Like, it'll be interesting to see the changes in the Prairie Hollow property after opening the canopy, burning Mm -hmm. two or three generations down the line to see the the change in in whitetail. Because, and Adams Adams mentioned it before, but it wasn't that long ago that we had a year where we had zero deer over two and a half years old mm-hmm. on 600 acres. Zero. That's So rough. I mean, if you're hunting mature deer, like we were even at that time, you, you didn't hunt it. You were chasing ghosts. <laughs> yeah. You, you sat there during the rut hoping something wandered through. But besides that, you you were wasting your time if you were looking for a mature deer.
1: Yeah, and what you said there, Chad, though, um, was people from our area often say, "Well, we don't have very big deer around here." It goes that goes right back to to the the foundation again of, of this question and the posing of culling or not to cull is the the misunderstanding of what you're seeing is not honestly its full representation. And that's the other thing I, I, I think it's important to talk about is, again, the the landscape or the environment, the habitat can limit the full expression of genes. And, and that's why we see the antler sizes, I believe, that we do here in uh, southwest Missouri. It's no different probably from, let's say, northern Arkansas or the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, you know, generally speaking, the habitat quality is pretty low in the, in those areas so the question then becomes okay once a deer gets to maturity, is the environment the habitat allowing it to express its full genetic potential And I say no. I say a lot of places far, far from the far from being able to the habitat is the limiting factor in a deer truly expressing what it can fully express. Not age, but I'm going to say in our area, once Prairie Hollow property is done, which is never going to be done, but once it gets into a better habitat standpoint where it offers much more, there's more sunlight reaching the forest floor, we are burning, we have high-quality food resources, Um, We got better cover. There's good security, this and that. We will see that four-and-a-half-year-old average increase who knows to how big, but we're not changing any genes. We're not changing the genotype. What we're doing is changing the variables in the environment that impact the genes and therefore change the expression of those genes, which results in bigger antlers, bigger well, phenotypes. You kind of
2: you kind of touched on another subject we've discussed as well is the fact that you can you can improve the habitat to see a greater response in your whitetails, but then you also have to maintain proper populations. Absolutely, we see that too in some people that have. Have increased the habitat somewhat. They've over, they've overtaken. Their populations have went way past carrying capacity, mm-hmm. and then you see their average drop back down again. What, because yet again, then another factor that is determining their expression is stress. Hundred percent. We see very high stress on these deer.
1: Yep. Yep. Uh, the habitat quality overall, yeah, may be good. But the number of mouths, the number of deer, the social interaction, social stresses adds another, if you will, environmental factor variable into this big old equation of how big can a deer get. And it limits that. It limits the, not the genetic potential. But the expression of those genes, the phenotype, what we actually get to see—that's the thing. Like well, you can't, you can't look through binoculars when you're hunting, and say that deer has got good genes, because well, we don't know. We can't look there and see a bar graph or a line graph or whatever it is. We can't see that. But well, all we're seeing is an expression. Well,
2: and, of those you genes, know, it,
1: it might, it might be
2: expressing. Say a, a buck. You, you may have a buck that looks a lot bigger than, than your other deer. And you think, man, that thing's really expressing what he could be. But then again, we like to throw out the, well, what could that deer have been? Absolutely. If, if it was a better habitat, if your habitat was in better shape, your deer numbers were in good shape. What, what does it look like? What would it have looked like then?
1: Yeah. Basically you, you pose the question in your head of, okay, I know that deer, he he's mature, but is he, representing only 70 percent of his maturity in his antler growth because he's limited by these environmental factors that again you can't look at that deer and say yes or no you don't know but it makes you ponder that question say well if i improve this or if i improve these environmental factors that deer would most likely increase in antler size increase in that know, phenotype
2: all we're doing with this is just reinforcing the people that None of this can ever be. You can never be completely done. You can never absolutely in, in any of your habitat management and any of this stuff. You can never just sit back, sit back in your rocking chair and say, "Yep, I've got it as good as it's going to be."
1: Absolutely not. Because as soon as you
2: think that, it's changed again.
1: Well, you know, we we we've shared about you know clients who have had success in great great areas. Um, and recently, they've thrown out some harvests that are just jaw dropping. Um, like, just incredible, credible deer that, you know, the bar was set at, let's just say, a 200-inch mark, and then, boom, here comes a, a deer that just shatters that, and you're like, what in the world? How, how well, does that happen? You know, and in, in the same sense,
2: you, habitat, you think you of, it. like, the Prairie Hollow property. You know, we've got, you think of it as, well, we're hoping to enhance the habitat and make it better through all these things. But then, our deer have been stressed because of closed canopy timber, wide open. They're stressed to the max. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, we've, we've, we'll go in, improve the habitat every way we can. You see the deer jump, but then as an, I mean, you see the antler size jumping and stuff like that, but then as another point, as another product of that, you're going to see does having, twins more. Yeah. You're going to have that as a better reaction to your habitat recruiting. being better and your food there being more food, more cover, they're not as stressed, so they're going to reproduce better. So then you ha- we're going to have to be on top of that and controlling our deer numbers beyond- before they get out of control and start mm-hmm. stressing them that way. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's I think I see a big uh, I think that's one problem that a lot of people have is they get in the habit of increasing deer populations. And by the time they realize the problem they're in, it's too late and they're having to just.
1: Way the Deer
2: just to get <laughs> them back to a reasonable population. Yeah. Yeah. It's the truth. And we've though. seen it in like Northern Missouri. I think a lot of people got used to seeing 20 or 30 deer every time they hunted and they think that's what it's supposed to be. And now the we've had ehd and different different factors that have reduced the population and now they're like well i only see six or seven deer every time i hunt that's mm-hmm. our population's in decline we got to do something about it it's like not necessarily
1: right right what what is the carrying capacity of that of that habitat and of that environment what should it be and as you as you do increase the quality of habitat yes your carrying capacity will go up but it has to be in that appropriate ratio of quality habitat and 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 basically consistent um numbers of deer per square mile based on the quality of that habitat. Um now, and I don't I don't know
2: if you're ready to switch over to timber,
1: but Well, I was just this, gonna say that that's a good segue. This is a good time to
2: that's a good leeway into the timber side of it and that's the same I mean when it comes
1: to timber it's populations. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, will, we're going to wait just one second because there is a great example and I'm going to have this in the show notes for everyone to see. Here's just one example of, of what we're talking about of how phenotype, the visual characteristics, the representation of antlers, completely throws you off as a hunter trying to make a, a management decision and and then we see in a, in the next year a completely different phenotype representation of antlers from this exact same deer with the same environmental impacts. So this is from QDMA.com. It's Pumbaa, this is the name of the buck, pumba yet another inferior buck that wasn't inferior. Um, so basically it, it's from a, uh, a mem- QDMA member out of Missouri and this gentleman had... Pictures, trail camera pictures of a buck, young buck with a goofy rack. He had a great, l- normal left side. and Then on the right side, it basically forked, and then he had a, a brow tine. And that's about it. Like it was very small, dinky. Um, looked as if he could easily be characterized in many people's eyes as inferior. Like his genes, I say that figuratively, as if his genes were poor, and he was, he had poor or genetically inferior genes um so this deer though has a very very characteristic rip in his ear so this allowed the hunter the landowner to observe this deer change from a two and a half year old to a stellar three and a half year old exact same tear in the ear everything um, and I mean, this, this publication has been spread around and there's multiple, there's actually another one, um, may just shared recently. I'll put in the show notes as well, um, just of, a, of another deer that went through a very similar thing, but back to Pumbaa, he, in 2017 as a three and a half year old, he is an absolute stud and, and his right side that had been, um, if you will, inferior the year previous, came back and grew a fantastic normal side, even very symmetrical with the left side. The deer has great mass, great brows, everything, exact same tear in its ear. Um, but this goes back to, again, that that foundation of if I were to make a management decision to harvest that deer as a two and a half, if I were to call him from the herd because you visually see, if you will, inferiorness in his antler representation or characteristics that year, you would have made a poor decision. So it goes back to you can't always base a management decision, whether you terminate something or let it pass or continue to grow, you can't make those decisions just on what you see on a year-to-year basis. So Pumbaa is a great example he comes back as a three-and-a-half-year-old, stellar, stellar deer. Um, I don't know if the, if the uh, landowner ever harvested him as a four-and-a-half or, or as three, whatever. does not make a difference. The story is, visually, as a two-and-a-half-year-old, he would have been, if you will, inferior in many people's eyes. But as a three-and-a-half-year-old, the next year, fantastic, very clean-looking deer. His genes in that whole process never changed. It didn't change it from a two-and-a-half to a three-and-a-half. Genes don't change in the lifespan of a deer. They're always the same. It's just what influences, environmentally, have on that deer to to We see a change lot of that it. with,
2: like, an injury.
1: An injury that. is and most likely what happened, right. Car accidents, whatever.
2: People see that it's got a messed up side and think, oh, that that deer's got bad genetics. And in reality, it's got something wrong with one of its legs, <laughs> and it's fixed it's the next year that.
1: if that injury is not, you know, um, inhibits its ability to function later on. And that, that's actually the other case um, that QDMA has shared. It was a buck from um, Alabama, I believe it was. And they called it kneecap because it had an injury to its front right leg. And right, right on its kneecap, just a big old swelled up thing. Looks like it had golf balls stuck in there just because all nasty. Um, probably calcified and whatnot inside. But that year that the injury was sustained or happened, antlers were just as goofy. It looked like they kind of like grew as if they were falling off his head, just really droopy off to the side. And the next year deer comes back. You can still see that that injury on its leg, but it wasn't slowing that deer down or or, um, inhibiting it from growing. And its antlers are fantastic. I mean, a very quality whitetail probably – 18 inches wide, great beams, good mass all the way through, but it's the exact same deer. So once again, there's the there's the the genes did not change in that deer. It's strictly the environmental influences changed in that deer's life that altered the phenotype, what you visually see. So that's super important. But that's that's another segue, Chad, into going into the trees with deer. We all know that deer shed antlers every single year, so basically, it's basically a new start that we can see different changes. However, a tree is is more of a on, along a continuum, so you don't have that well, same ability. Not to Not just judge. that,
2: but then the deer also disperse. Uh-huh. I mean, you see in in a lot of younger bucks dispersing miles from their home range, from mm-hmm. where they from where they were born. That's how. I mean in the white-tailed deer you you see the genetics moving you have genetic dispersal trees once they start growing in one spot they're not picking their roots up and moving a mile away
1: no they're not no they're not nope it, it and that's a we'll go back to the, what you started with 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 the trees and talking about calling it and again culling when talking about trees goes into TSI. We're always talking about TSI, stuff that we need to do, stuff we recommend to clients, this and that. Um, But TSI is a big part. Really, even if you're in northern Missouri where there's not that many trees, you still should do it. Um, But in in our area, and again, Appalachian, North Carolina, all throughout the southeast, um, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, heavy dominated by forest timber ground. TSI is a super um, important management technique that needs to be done, implemented. It's an active thing, just like actively managed a herd.
2: It's not just of habitat benefit. It's also as a timber benefit and can be a monetary benefit. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you're seeing multiple benefits from TSI as far as opening up the canopy and letting light in, but as a byproduct of that, your, tree, your trees are growing faster, they're healthier, they're not choked, you're, you're seeing a, a lot faster growth out of those trees so that you get a harvest sooner.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it, let's go back to that, that population standpoint because when when you are doing TSI— You're making these terminate or cut, um, treat with herbicide. You're making these decisions, and usually at a pretty rapid pace. Um, But those management decisions are generally based on population, or if you will, in a timber standpoint, stems per acre, correct?
2: Yes, or basal area. Or basal area, yep. Which, I mean, that's, that's what we, I mean, I generally look at basal area, and that's your stem, I mean, that's. Basically
1: stems per Basic, acre. Right. The, the layman's terms of stems per acre. And so as you're making that decision, you know, we're, we're getting to core sampling in a second. But again, this goes back to what you see is not always an accurate representation of that, that trees, that individual stems, genetic quality. Because we all know about competition and competition for light resources, water resources, soil nutrients, yes. this and that. And, if... and,
2: and that's the other side of it, too. A, a tree without the ability to move, you, you never know if, say, one tree sprouts. You have a whole one big white oak tree that drops a bunch of acorns all over the ground.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Some of them may hit in really good soil and one of them could hit and sprout on a spot where the soil is a little more poor, there's another, another seedling that's already there and say that big white Oak dies. Then if it's already got competition, those two acorns could have sprouted at the same time. You have two trees that are same age. One grows really well and fast and the other one just sits and slowly grows. Mm -hmm. And, say 30 years from now somebody walks in there and thinks boy that tree's that that one tree's a whole lot older than this other one if i go in here and cut these out that that one smaller white oak's really going to grow and that's not necessarily the case right and that's why i've heard it recommended a lot of times you know you hear especially when you talk to normal to like the just average public a lot of times clear cut is a terrible term i mean it's villainized in it's scary in the media people think oh clear cut oh we don't want to do that but a lot of times clear cutting is recommended in hardwoods Mm -hmm. and it's used a lot in pines because a lot of times you're going to see that or even aged you're going to see that be more of a benefit because you're going to have a total regrowth of the of the system instead of you may i mean I, i was telling you and I've told multiple people about it of a – they were doing a timber sale on forest service land, and they went in and core sampled multiple trees to show the ages. And because uh, forest service background, you have to – in any timber sale area, you have to have it put it out for prospectus and get co- public comment. And sometimes they'll have, public, they'll have a public meeting where people can voice their concerns. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they did all this to present to the the public, and they had two trees that they'd they'd core sampled. One was like a – I'm trying to remember the size. One was like a 16-inch black oak, and another one was a, say, like 9-inch white oak or something. And they'd core sampled them, and they asked the people which one they thought was older. Well, of course, everyone picks the bigger tree.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, it was – the the small white oak was like 90, and the black oak was 60. Right. So this smaller tree was 30 years older than the bigger tree. It was just a product of where it had sprouted and where it had grown. This white oak probably had was suppressed through its whole life and really never grew. But without knowing that, you would walk in there and think, well, that's a younger tree. I want to leave that one. Certainly, yeah. I mean, there are places for select cutting and there are places for clear cutting. So you just have to know and that's what a product of its environment when you go to in the same sense the genetics and genotype phenotype stuff
1: yeah you, you can't go into a timber stand and look at all the trees and say oh that tree's genes are bad that tree's genes are good look at look at it. it's got a great crown it's got a great um straight trunk well maybe this other tree that you said had bad genes could have the exact same thing or or it in its size and um, stuntedness, has a great trunk and has a great canopy, but because of the surrounding competition, it still it still isn't able to um, express all of that to the same degree as the other tree that you're saying has good genes. But
2: well, truly, it's not a matter you know, of genes.
1: It's the expression the same, of those genes, the visual In the same sense
2: with trees, you you actually can in, in cert- I mean in the right stands you can say this tree has better genes. And I was kind of telling you before when we were talking about this that like they have a seed orchard down in Arkansas mm-hmm. where I work where they have went in and found in pine trees, they went into the timber into like the national forest and have trees that have really good crowns, have good straight trees,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and they have gathered acorns from those and they're trying to trying to have in this seed orchard pine trees with a better genetic system I think to you where said you acorns. have these trees with straight crowns. Because, I mean, pines are bad to have what they call rabbit ears, mm-hmm. which are a double top. Gotcha. And depending upon how high that is, it's less decided. It lowers their timber value. Mm-hmm. So they go in and try to select these trees for their better genetics and are trying to then have them selected in areas and try to grow a better tree. So that is something in, in timber you can actually do in a just normal system. You can, you can try to select for better genetics in trees, as opposed to deer that are moving everywhere.
1: Right. Basically, the ability for those genes to spread and move and this and that, you know, they're not stationary objects.
2: Yes. And Where, see that's the the goal of that is to pick a good tree and then you can plant those their their offspring in an area with other offspring from good trees and hope to have then pine cones from mm-hmm. two good trees and hope to pollinate to promote a better a better genetic tree.
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's Basically, in essence what you're saying, it is easier in, in in forestry to look at phenotype of, let's say, bigger mature trees where you can where you can basically understand the environmental factors better, so therefore you can make a better discernment of its genes and then select those seeds, the cones, replant those, knowing that based on the environmental impacts that you can visually see around that tree, that's got good form, good uh, trunk, healthy, this and that, and hopefully and have better where, offspring.
2: Like when we're going in and doing habitat management, when you're going in and do a TSI, you can make a basis upon, well, these trees are, you can find the, the crown trees, the trees that are mm-hmm. the bigger trees that are choking everything out you can go in and release those trees. Absolutely. You can pick your choice trees instead of, I mean, it's instead of just promoting them according to species a lot of times. That's why you cringe when you see people, especially the hinge cutting. Right. As a as a timber person, you just cringe because it's like these people have no idea. Species, trees, anything, all they're trying to do is put some timber on the ground. And it's like you could go in and actually benefit your habitat to where 20, 30 years down the line, you could actually make money on that and be improving your habitat at the same, the same sense, time. instead of thrashing your thrashing your woods and making them not worth anything.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If, if you were to be able to identify, look at specific qualities of trees and understand what they should be within their species, um, shape, form, this and that, and make that management decision whether it is to yes. call and, that, and that's why
2: you tell people i mean like luckily we we've, we've got a benefit we all know the tree species and everything and have mm-hmm. for a long time we've been cutting tsi and can actually i can see benefits in places that i've cut in the past where trees that were almost pole stands but now we're closing in on possibly a timber harvest in mm-hmm. some areas but for somebody if, if they don't have any any reasonable idea on tree species or what they're doing, ask somebody to help you.
1: Don't just you, you assume have and
2: cut. to ask. There's state agencies that that offer offer free services for that even mm-hmm. on timber management. It's like don't just go in with a chainsaw and start hacking.
1: Yep. Well, and that that's that goes back to basically the entire discussion as a whole of what you see in habitat and in biology is not always what it truly is and is again is accurate representation there's other factors that influence all of this and so to make these management decisions we have to understand you know the system the species at whole well. we have to understand the environmental impacts that is going to either suppress or release or improve um, each one of these well, it's pretty specimens. much
2: do do your research. Yeah, you don't go in guns ablazing. You don't go in chainsaws ablazing. That's it. Research it and quote of the podcast. You do anything?
1: Don't go in guns ablazing or chainsaws blazing
2: <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. Well, that's, that
1: that's a good. Honestly, that that's a pretty good ending right there. Chad, in a wrap up. We're we're about fifty six minutes into this. Um, Time that it, perfectly. Yeah. Any other closing statements though that. You know, from this conversation that you would encourage people, listeners, to either try and adopt, educate themselves on in making these decisions. Because ultimately, this, this goes back to the, the mission statement, um, really, of Land and Legacy. What you're doing now in the management decisions that, that you are putting into action across a property, um, whether it be a lease, whatever you own, this and that, it has lasting effects. Especially especially your timber
2: management. Absolutely. You cut you cut a tree and it's gonna be a long time before it comes back. I mean you're not you may never see the benefit of the tree that replaces it in your lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. And depending upon how old you are. And I guess the other side of it is you have to go in I mean, you have to go in open minded in a lot of this stuff. Always be trying to learn on it. I mean, obviously, Adam – you, Adam, and I all – I mean, we're passing information back and forth all the time trying to learn more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we'd consider ourselves to know quite a bit on this, but I'm always – we're always trying to figure out more, try to learn more on the subjects to try to – be even better
1: yeah exactly no and that that's just like (laughs) we're
2: constantly every year we find mistakes yeah every year we realize stuff that we've done wrong
1: yep or could tweak and yeah and improve um you know just like habitat it's it's never over it's never done um, same thing with the education of all this, like as we learn more about natural processes and, and everything, we have to, um, one, share that. And we love sharing that with everyone. That's why we're doing this podcast right now, but, um, it doesn't, it doesn't end for us. We're not, we're not done learning about this. We haven't just kicked up the feet and said, okay, you know, God, as much as I know, or I need to know. And, and, and I'm good. Yeah. I'm good for the rest you, of my you have life. To, no.
2: You have to enjoy this stuff too, because. Like we've said it before, it's it's almost a curse at times. Yeah. That you sit in a tree stand and we sit in a tree stand and think, well, I I need to cut those trees. Yeah. And it's like I've I already. I mean, what was it? Well, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving weekend. It was hot. Mm. I already busted the chainsaw out and started because I'm like. I looked at those cedars the other day, and I just had to get them cut. <laughs> I had like, to get started on that. They well, were bugging me every time I was at the farm. I started seeing them.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like what the question everyone asks: like, what's what's that favorite piece of gear that you carry to the woods with you? You know, like while you're hunting, and uh, are just quickly going to become a chainsaw. <laughs> oh yeah, just and because we, still, we can't sit in the I mean, stand and not, not think about which trees need to go, which tree needs. To I've lead, done and, it a little. I've done it a
2: little on the farm, but that, I mean, our plans are to video some of our chainsawing and hunting. Yeah, oh yeah. Using the chainsaw as a hunting tactic.
1: Old dinner bell, yep.
2: So, I mean, I've I've done it before without a camera and seen deer and turkeys, honestly, but, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's one you, I know a lot of people that put off habitat management until, well, I don't want to go in and do any,
1: any work until season's over. And it's like, you don't have to wait. Nope, sure don't. Well, Chad, um, you've got, an animal profile you share with me you're driving right now so everyone so <laughs> if the audio yeah, i, don't, off, I don't have a
2: computer in front no. of me and this was uh this was kind of last minute i'm i'm driving actually to go hunting this evening yep so i uh i don't have any information in front of me but it's one it's an animal profile that i have when you guys have talked about it it's one that stand out i've just always thought it was kind of a neat bird and that's the loggerhead shrike mm-hmm. and i think y- you've looked it up so you've got a little more information on it but they're kind of a, a different animal. If people don't know them, you may have you may have seen evidence of them. They're they're kind of. I read an article the other day talking about them that they were they were either a species in decline. They were kind of listed as something like that because they're grassland species. Mm-hmm. So obviously our grasslands are declining rapidly. So any of our grassland species are generally in decline. But they are an animal that they they feed on a lot of small small rodents lizards stuff like that lizards are the one i see mentioned the most but if it's a larger a larger prey they stab them on thorns or barbed wire fences and save them for later so people can see like a lizard stuck on a fence like yeah. what is that and it's from a loggerhead shrike and there's other species of shrike there's a a northern shrike and there's a couple others i can't remember the names but they're just another cool grassland species.
1: Well, you know, what what is cool about them and when you look them up and um, you see them, you don't see them as basically a, a predator. You don't see them as something that's consuming other vertebrates. You know, you, you'd you think it's, you know, nuts or berries, whatever. Um, it kind of looks just like a sparrow, but it's, it's a sparrow-sized body uh, or, or robin-sized body, yet it is preying on small, small rodents, preys on insects, grasshoppers. And like you said, it sticks them on these thorns, lizards, um, frogs, snakes, turtles even, but it sticks them on thorns and and barbed wire to save them, save the meals for later. So it's kind of crazy. And as you said, it's a grassland species. So most of the nests are, um, two and a half to four feet above the ground and where there's not that much, um, prairie left a lot of times they will um, nest in brush piles and or tumbleweeds so that's kind of cool you know we and we talked about plums the other week too um, as one of the plant profiles and plums we talked about being great nests uh, especially in the grassland um, settings this loggerhead shrike would certainly choose a plum thicket um, to nest in, right there in that range, two and a half to four foot tall. So, um, just kind of a cool connection between different animals and plants that have been highlighted. But, Chad, that's a that's an awesome bird. And it's oh, yeah. beautiful and they're, too. they're really.
2: I mean, they're they almost look masked. Mm-hmm. They're they're a, a, like a clean. I mean, they're not bright colors, but they're kind of a cleanly colored bird they're black and gray and white
1: very distinct markings
2: yes that's they just one they're they're kind of another one of those grassland species that i've always thought was kind of a cool thing
1: yeah absolutely well for for a plant profile this week i chose the eastern white pine and uh it's obviously evergreen species um grows primarily um east of the rocky mountains It includes pretty much all of the states um, along the Minnesota, Iowa, uh, Missouri, Arkansas, and east, except for Louisiana, Mississippi, and Florida. So it's covered – it covers a huge range. It pretty
2: much covers all of the range that's in the east except for, like, where it gets into the longleaf, the historic longleaf
1: pine. Yep. Um, So – it basically can grow in cool, humid climates, um, best on sandy, well-drained soil. Um, again, it ranges from most the east coast, from Maine southward to Georgia, extends west towards Iowa, and then all the way up into pretty much all of Canada in that same kind of eastern portion of, of uh, Canada. Um, what's crazy is White Pine's can live to be 200, 250 years old. One tree in Syracuse, New New York was 450 years old in 1980. Um, Another cool factor about the white pine is that it contains, the needles contain five more times vitamin C than a lemon. Never would have known that, but that's pretty wild. Um,
2: So you're saying instead of taking like vitamin C pills, you can just go out and chew on pine needles? Just go chew on
1: them. Just go gnaw, gnaw on them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of the reasons that it's important or, or crossed my mind to talk about a white pine is the fact of, Hey, listen, it's wintertime. Um, this has a huge impact on, um, especially in the Northern Eastern ranges, uh, impact on whether it's yarding behavior of deer or just day-to-day bedding behavior, uh, with snowfall, uh, these pines, Eastern white pine, um, have a fascinating adaptation to survive extremely cold winters. The needles of white pine, um, acclimate to the cold. They show elevated activity of antioxidants from protection. Um, so it does not damage the cells at low temperatures and high light levels. So it's, it's kind of crazy how that plant adapts, um, to those cold, cold temperatures to, to make it in those areas. And it, the seeds, um, are consumed by songbirds, and then even medium-sized and small mammals consume the seeds and bark. So it's extremely important um, in those habitats where forage is is limited and good quality cover at this time is limited because it'll help to uh, reduce the amount of snow that's actually on the ground because of the structure of it being an evergreen, the structure of its branches, the holding capacity. So they're extremely important. So they're cool to talk about this time of the year. But thanks for coming on the podcast this week, Chad, and just being a, a great substitute player. Anytime. I, I I would like
2: to think I did better than Adam would have.
1: <laughs> if you have a comment on that, leave I mean, it on social media. Yeah, it's a, it's know. always
2: a brotherly competition. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I
1: mean, it's just brotherly love. That's what it comes down to.
2: No doubt. It's, leading leading to that, I've got a would you rather for you. Oh, let's hear it. <clears throat> would, would you rather film me – shooting big show oh. or the the new eight point that showed up this summer
1: <laughs> oh man uh honestly because we, we were in the blind yesterday for all uh, those who are listening I it would not have mattered at all <laughs> either one of those two bucks those are two hitless bucks that um, that we think are gonna become very regular patternable on um, this this late season so uh, based on the last year's History from that we, we basically were able to uh, catch up on Deer Lab it's, and see, like, he was regular. So, if you, you, had you guys have kind of week, talked
2: on the, the fact that we are kind of limiting ourselves to one buck a piece. And it's like, right. you guys have had this luck and had the rut and had all the deer running around. And I kind of had to sit back. And I've had about the most boring season so far <laughs> of, yeah. of about any of them. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I guess this works out. I get late season,
1: man. Oh. It, honestly, and I don't think you would care though either, uh, of eat either one of those two deer because both are mature nah. and incredible whitetails.
2: It wouldn't bother me either way. I just thought that was a good, a good oh, would yeah. you Rather,
1: absolutely. I would, I would happily film either one. <laughs> get double lunged and run up the ridge, man. That would be cool. That would be fantastic. So, Maybe maybe
2: we'll start getting some snow and
1: we'll we'll see if it work out. Appreciate it again, man. Um, Thanks to everyone who listened. Uh, Again, if you have any comments, questions, let us know. Info at landlegacy.tv. Subscribe to uh, YouTube. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook. Let us know how we're doing review-wise for iTunes. Um, Love to hear from you guys. And if this was eye-opening, if this was a good perspective to share, let us know. And then share it with your buddies, too. Um, those people who may don't quite understand culling and management and making these decisions. It can be tough, but we have to really take a step back sometimes to, to move forward with things. We have to understand what all is is influencing these decisions that we make. So hopefully this was good. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Really appreciate you guys. Listening. We'll see you next week.